Hi, welcome to Back to Excited, episode 30. My name is Arvin. Joining me as always, my colleague from PensionPlanPuppets.com. It's Acting the Fooleman. Hello, everybody. Fooleman, how have you been doing recently? It's been a while since I've had to say that. We've had guests. We've had, you know, week absences. How have you been? I've been doing well. Uh, There's not a lot to report. I'm like have like a new year's resolution because i'm still instinctively on the school clock even though i'm well long removed from school so i was like it's september and i turn over a new light a new leaf of all the words that i can't pronounce leaf (laughs) anyway uh yeah so i've been getting up before work the last two weeks and like exercising at six there is no way i'm gonna sustain this it's so tiring (laughs) yeah no i I, i've been trying to do that too every every day before i go to uh, school. I, I try and uh, take advantage of the fact that U of T has free gyms for students. Mm-hmm. And it's good because it's not at all crowded at that time because students are lazy and probably still sleeping off the, uh, the drinks. But <laughs> like, I, I know that it's an uphill battle to like continue to actually have the willpower to do it. I know. It's, it's just for the first 10 minutes, I pray that someone will kill me on the way yeah. to bed. Um, and then I get to the gym and it's me and like five other people. But, like, yeah. all of those other people are ripped. Yeah, they're all hardcore. <laughs> it's like, one of these things is not like the others. <laughs> yeah, it's all, like, people who are, like, doing bodybuilding competitions and Ironman and things like that. It's like, oh, how insufferable. Yeah. Get your perfect body out of here. <laughs> yeah. No, I was do- I was trying to bench. Like, there were two uh, benches next to one another. And the guy next to me had, like, a cool 70 pounds heavier than I was doing. And I was, like, straining to lift what I had. And I was like, can you please just go away? <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's there's this uh, this young lady who goes, who I see at the gym often at that time. And she she literally squats, like, double what I squat. It's, it's like, very much like, oh, okay, there's levels to this. <laughs> yeah. But the point is, we're going to persevere. We're going to be, like, all of the Leafs at this instant in the best shape of our lives, hopefully soon. Yes, uh, exactly. Back after a solid offseason, whether it's true or not. Um, so yeah, something happened in the hockey world this week. A lot yeah, of things so you, happened, but one big thing. Yeah, so you know who isn't in the best shape of their lives? Yeah, <laughs> Ottawa Senators. Oh, How, yeah. How's that for a segue? Uh, Talk about podcast professionalism. <laughs> We're just getting warmed up here. I, I think we have a lot of dunks to go on these Senators. So the Ottawa Senators made a trade, and they dealt Eric Carlson, who is consensus the best offensive defenseman in the NHL, a lot maybe of, ever. Maybe ever. A lot of people would say the best overall defenseman. That's a little more disputed, but, like, it's not... No one would call you crazy for thinking it. Yeah. He's won the Norris twice. He's been close to winning the Norris multiple other times. Um, he's a very, very good player. Uh, routinely led the uh, the Senators in points. Uh, when they had their miracle playoff run, only, like, a year and a half ago, which is incredible to think that it was that recent... Um, Carlson stood on his head, basically. Like, he was... The the part of it that wasn't luck was mostly Eric Carlson. He's just a tremendous all-around player. I think yeah. everyone knows this, but I feel like it's really worth emphasizing that, you know, you can get kind of jaded and maybe used to his goodness, and he really, really is that good. He, he's the best sense player ever. It's not particularly close. No. Uh, Daniel Alfredson was always overrated. Bye. Yeah. <laughs> You know what? Okay, so do you think you can make a legit? I haven't thought this out, but do you, could you make a legitimate argument that Marion Hosa is a better player than Daniel Alfredson? Oh, 
You know, Hosa was a really fantastic all-around player, like a really yeah. good two-way player. At his peak, um, and I, it, it pains me to give any kind of credit in this regard, And but he was playing with Hosa at the time, but like that one line, the year that they made a run to the finals, was legitimately fantastic. Um, and Alfredson deserves a lot of credit for that. Did they but. make the run to the finals when Hosa was there? I thought that was... It was a th- that was 2007, right? Was that wasn't that the Heatley Spezza era? Heatley Spezza was it? Oh, you know what? You might be right. Hosa had moved on to Atlanta at that point, I think. Okay, so you know what? I'm blurring my Sens eras because I seem to remember Alfredson with Hosa, but I guess that would have been 2004. Yeah. Um, okay. When they lost to the Leafs, as they did in the three previous years. That's all they ever did. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, Alfredson. We're getting off topic here, but. Alfredson, yeah. I think, is a not. He, he he's going to probably get into the Hall of Fame if he's not in there already. But I think he was kind of the perfect definition of a Hall of Very Good player. Yeah, and the thing is, is that he meant a lot. Yeah. To the community, you know, he was. Yeah, absolutely. And that stuff matters. Yeah. Um, which I mean, is and to great. be clear, like a lot of Leafs, like perennial Leafs, get overrated. Like I think when the NHL did their top 100 list, uh, Matt Sundin made the list, and he probably should have, but. I don't think Matt Sundin was better than Evgeny Malkin. No, I don't think... No one ever understands how good Evgeny Malkin is. I feel like this is a recurring thing where it's just because he's the second-blessed player on his team. Yeah. Most of the time, because there have been periods where you could actually argue he was better. Um, Including last year. Yeah. Um, Crosby had a down year. Malkin had an up one. But like there was one stretch in like 2009 where Evgeny Malkin was just breathtakingly dominant. Like yeah. one of the best seasons you've ever seen. I think 2009 is the right year. Clearly, years are not my forte this morning. Yeah, his, like his I'm playoff blown. run in 2009. Which, yeah. which, when the, when they won the cup, I think they won the cup in 2009. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, okay, we got very off track there. So yeah. the Carlson trade. We should mention what the actual trade was. Mm-hmm. So in exchange for Eric Carlson, who has one year left on his deal, uh, the Senators have received Chris Tierney, a forward, uh, kind of a third line-ish center. Uh, Dylan DeMello, who is kind of a third-pair defenseman, who was described in an athletic piece describing, or talking about the trade, as functional, which is, <laughs> I think, kind of the base-level compliment you can give to someone. Um, and forward prospects, Josh Norris and Rudolph Balsers. Uh, yes. Some guy. Uh, and <laughs> Dude. Yeah. Uh, and from what I've heard, these prospects are decent but not amazing. Um and they also got a first-round pick in 2019 or 2020, and a second-round pick in 2019. If the Sharks miss the playoffs in this upcoming season, the first-rounder will be in 2019. Otherwise, it's a 2020 first-rounder. Mm-hmm. There's also two conditional picks. Um, should the Sharks sign Carlson to a contract extension, Ottawa receives San Jose's second-round selection in 2021, which would become a first-round selection if uh, San Jose reaches the Stanley Cup final this season. Mm-hmm. And hilariously, uh, if... The second condition is if Carlson is on an Eastern Conference roster reserve list, meaning if he's essentially traded to an Eastern Conference team at some point this season, the Senators will receive an additional first-round pick from the Sharks. Okay, I think we need to, because there's a blur of pick conditions there, but we really need to emphasize just how embarrassing it is that they included that. Yes, that it, it's really a very, very laughable condition, because legitimately the only reason to have this condition is... Because you're afraid of looking stupid. You're afraid of uh, San Jose doing what they did with Mike Hoffman and just flipping him to a divisional or conference rival and making you look silly. Now, here, there's a couple issues I have with Ottawa's entire thought process here. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so for one, this condition makes it very clear that they were not interested in trading Carlson to within the Eastern Conference. Mm-hmm. And that just seems really short-sighted because there are not that many teams who have who for whom it makes sense to acquire a rental Eric Carlson. No. Right? You need to be a good team uh, that is pretty much one piece away from being a contender or a great team that just wants to solidify their status at the top the way Tampa Bay uh, was when they were you know, reported to be interested. So that's not a huge market to begin with. And then you're basically cutting it in half by only looking at Western Conference teams. And, I mean, you don't need to be an economics major to understand that if you reduce the demand for a team, if you exclude the demand, essentially, of half the teams in the league, well, the price is probably going to go down because you can't really play teams against each other anymore. Exactly. Uh, And the thing is, you know, there's a saying in contract law, every clause in a contract has a cost. There's no way the Sharks came out and said, hey, do you want this in here? Uh, Or if they did, it's because they had a pretty sophisticated understanding of Ottawa's psychology. But that cost something in the trade return. That was something that Ottawa accepted a lower value for, or it wouldn't be in there. Yeah, and this implicitly means that Ottawa could probably, almost certainly, have gotten a better return from an Eastern Conference team. Yeah. Uh, Right, like like the, the fact that, as you said, every clause has a cost. This clause, excluding it, or excluding it would have made the return better in theory exactly and that was a choice that they made uh i suspect dealing at the last trade deadline is also something that they could have done uh for a significantly better return so there's a bit of an involved history here with trading eric carlson that relationship has been bad for a while uh, Eugene yeah. Melnick and GM Pierre Dorian, more Melnick than Dorian, I get the impression Dorian's a bit of a yes man, but okay, uh, have really mismanaged the team. The team has gone very, very badly in the last year. There's a general discontent. There's the whole thing allegedly involving Mike Hoffman's fiance, which I won't get into, and it's currently pending litigation, so I'm not sure the truth of it. But it sounds like things have really gone kind of south. But... In February, it was clear that Carlson was being shopped and there were offers on the table. And Dorian said subsequent to the trade, this was the plan in February. He didn't say that publicly, but he's said it since. In April, they went on a series of town hall meetings saying, we're not going to trade Carlson at the draft. Um, We're going to make him a contract offer. They didn't trade him at the draft. They made him a contract offer, which was below uh, Carlson's market value and which they probably knew he wasn't going to accept, and yeah. he didn't. And then they traded him for a return that I think most people would characterize as disappointing. So you put this all together, and you get the image of an organization that is not really invested in doing what's best, that is routinely botching its public relations, but that seems to be trying to sacrifice hockey value for public relations and screwing that up. Like, they wanted it to be Carlson's fault that he was going, or they wanted not to get blamed for it. That's the rationale for saying, we're going to make him a contract offer when you know that it's not actually going to go anywhere. Um, And they've since implicitly acknowledged that was a lie. Uh, That combined with the don't flip him to the Eastern Conference and make us look stupid clause really suggests kind of where the Ottawa organization's head is at. Like Eugene Melnick wants, I guess, something that he can sell 
and one it's kind of transparent but two it's not working season ticket renewals for the senders are in the toilet and a big part of that is that they've botched uh what core they had they're probably going to lose duchene and stone I wouldn't be totally shocked if they managed to extend Stone, but even so, he would be like their one really good player left. And so they've frittered away a lot of the goodwill that came from that pesky Sens run, which was a PDO bender mostly, but still. Um, and it's curious just seeing the thinking that's gone into it. This return, so let's break down exactly what this return is. So Chris yeah. Kearney is a pretty okay middle six forward. I've seen some people suggest that, like... I'm, I'm going to misquote this, but I saw like a wins above replacement model actually had him as negative value, but I don't know if I want to damn him on that basis. Those are kind of, uh, they can be really, really volatile year to year. Yeah. It depends on the model you're using, but uh, yeah, uh, without diving in further, I wouldn't take it at face value. He, he, he's a, I think if he's your third line center, you're not yeah. in a bad spot. Uh, but if he's your second line center, that's probably indicative that of the fact that you're not a very good team. And mm-hmm. that's kind of what he's going to have to be in Ottawa, especially since they also got the news that uh, Jean-Gabriel Pajot has, I believe, a ruptured Achilles tendon, which is just a brutal injury. Oh, and yeah. going to be out six for months. six months. Yeah. yeah. And like, that's an injury where it's also, there's a very real chance that he'll come back and not be the same player. Yeah. And like both of these guys, Tierney and uh, Pajot, I think are overqualified. Maybe. I don't even know if I'd say Peugeot is an overqualified third line center, but you say, say that like they're both quite good third line centers. Yeah, yeah. Like um, if, if they're playing depth roles, you're probably pretty happy with them. Mm-hmm. If they're being forced up higher, then it's a sign that your team isn't that strong. So yeah, Tierney is, and he he he's I believe 23, so he's not old, but you know you're you can't really count on huge growth from here out here on out either. He's not going to suddenly become a 60 point guy. No. So the upside's very limited there. Um, Dylan Demello. It's a good name, but he's a 25-year-old third-pair defenseman who's only recently kind of established himself in the NHL. Fucking old defenseman. Don't yeah, he's, he's, he's just a guy. Yeah, you need people to round out your roster, but Dylan DeMello isn't making a difference for you now or in three years. No. Uh, forward prospects. So Josh Norris was, I believe, the Sharks' first-round pick in 2017. Mm-hmm. And, again, everything I've, I've heard about him is that... He's a good player, he's a smart player, doesn't have incredible upside, which is what you would expect from a late first-round pick. Yeah. I've, I've heard some people say that he was kind of a safe pick. Like, yeah. the, the thinking is that he's probably going to be an NHLer in some capacity, but he doesn't have that kind of electric potential. Like, I, I would contrast him maybe with the Timothy Lilligren pick, where we clearly had some hope uh, of a guy with a little bit of kind of sparkle and shine to him, uh, even if he was less of a sure thing. Um, Lilligren was maybe kind of a complicated scenario, but Norris is considered like a safe bet to be a kind of depth center, but he's not going to light the world on fire. Yeah, uh, and Rudolph Spousers, I think, from what I've heard, uh, he has he has some skill, but again, is it, none of these guys are guys who project to be difference makers at the NHL level. Now, it's possible for the two prospects to kind of exceed expectations and become that, mm-hmm. and certainly that's kind of what the Sens are hoping for. But as, as is the case with pretty much every prospect, the odds are not in their favor to do that. Yeah. Um, somewhat worryingly, one of the selling points that Dorian used for Josh Norris, who is, I would assume, I think, kind of the, the crown jewel, if there is one, of this mm-hmm. 
uh, trade is that he's best friends with Brady Kachuk. Which is, yeah. like, <laughs> cool trivia, but, like, I r- really don't see how that's relevant to how good he is as a hockey player. Yeah. And the other thing is that Brady Kachuk is a annoying SOB, I guess is how I would describe him. Uh, but I think that drafting him when Philip Zadina was on the board might look silly in a couple of years. Like, Yeah, it was not a pick that was supported by kind of the analytics and research we have about drafting Yeah, to like, this point. He's fine. He's a good player. He might be a first-line player. Uh, you know, you can't rule that out. It's just there's a lot of decisions here where they seem to be thinking, we'll probably get an okay guy out of this. We'll probably get an okay guy out of Chris Cherney and Josh Norris and maybe Rudolph Balsters. And, you know, at the end of that, where does that leave you? You have a team of guys who were about as good as Jean-Gabriel Pajot. And you've traded the best player in the history of your franchise for that. You say, well, he was a one-year rental. We agree that suppresses the market. But you got to this point. You know, you let it get to this point. Yeah, and um, I think that's that's the key. Like, I've seen some takes where it's like, you know what? When you look at the history of rentals, you don't get that much for them in general, right? And the Sens did get a first-round pick at the potential for, for more first-round picks. Actually, the most valuable deal, or most valuable part of this deal might be the conditional first-round pick if the Sharks re-sign Carlson and make the finals this year because that mm-hmm. is a first-round pick in 2021, and the Sharks have a lot of old players and a lot of players on long-term deals. They could be bad in 2021. Yeah. But that pick only conveys if Carlson re-signs with the Sharks and they make it to the finals this year. The Sharks are a great team. They have as good a shot of going to the finals as anyone in the West. But they, what are the odds of both of those things happening? Even if Let's be really... Optimistic. Let's say we give Carlson a 50% chance of signing with the Sharks. So 50% Sharks, 50% every other team in the league. Yeah. And then say, okay, the Sharks also have a 25% chance of making it to the Stanley Cup Finals. Right? Which is, I mean, I think probably quite high, given that, they'd have, given that Winnipeg and Nashville exist. The Sharks do have an easier division, that, but Vegas is still around. The odds of any team going to the Finals at 25% is probably a bit high. Yeah. But if you do that you're still only at a one in eight chance that this pick conveys Basically, into, into a first yeah. rounder. Uh, and, you know, you're saying for a second, you say, okay, well, a second gives us what? Conceivably a 30% chance in an NHL player. We might get an okay guy out of that. Yeah. That's it, it, 30% every time. is high, to be honest. Like that's, I think the rates for second rounders are lower than that even. Especially since yeah. they'll be... That's off the uh, top of my head player. for like the 100 games played standard, which... yeah. <laughs> this is an aside. Uh, John Ferguson Jr. had one draft where six of the seven guys he picked qualify as hits by that standard of 100 games played. But, like, one of the guys is Corbinian Holzer. And, like, <laughs> and none of them are, like, elite talents. The best of them is, I think, he had Reimer and he had Yuri Tolusti, I think. Um, and Komarov was And Komarov, right. Komarov was that year. So Komarov was probably the best of them. But it was, cool. like... Was, wasn't Kuhlman in that draft, too? Was he? Oh my god, have I brought shame to my name? Oh my god, you have to change your name now. That's it, I'm retired. Uh, but <laughs> anyway, the point is just that he hit on a bunch of mid-level players. But like, if, if that's the best scenario for a second round pick, you know, what you really want if you're the Ottawa Senators is some kind of guy who might be an elite player. And it's hard to get those back. Uh, the Sharks didn't have too many of those guys in that organization, but like, 
They didn't get Ryan Merkley, Mm -hmm. who is, I think, one of the most interesting prospects in the Sharks organization. He's like, it's rare to hear, frankly, a Canadian player who is like, not stereotyped the way that a lot of European players are, be talked about as having severe character concerns in his draft year the way that Merkley does. But he has a ton of talent. Um, There was Thomas Hurdle, who I think hasn't quite delivered, but he's like an interesting young player. He's he's like a a good top six winger, right? If nothing else, Hurdle. But it it just seemed like in every case, they didn't quite get the best case scenario. And they eventually went for quantity. Like they could come out of this, you know, with quite a lot of assets. They will. They acquired four players and uh, multiple picks, but it's like... Again, is the goal of being the Ottawa Senators to just eventually be okay? Because from where they're currently sitting, I'm sure that's appealing. But do, like, what do you want to be? Do you ever want to contend for a cup again um, in the foreseeable future? You have to find some way to get elite talent. Uh, I, I'm mirroring Tyler Dello on that point, but I think he's right about this, where it's like, you've got to find something like... To be your Austin Matthews, to be, you know, your Matthew Barzal or something. And some of that is maybe you'll get lucky and you'll hit on a first rounder or something. Mm-hmm. A lot of that. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, some of it's just dumb luck, but it's like, I don't see anything close to that. Like, yeah. You know, is there yeah. a, pl- like, if you start thinking, is there a player in the Sens organization uh, who you would trade for, you know, Nylander or something? Of course not. Are there two? I don't think so. <laughs> you know, where, it, like, if you combine them even, like... If Stone was on a long-term deal, I would, but otherwise, no. Yes, Stone's sort of the, the edge case. But again, he might go, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, it's... And again, what, what has to be restated here is that this was a situation that was of their own doing, right? Yeah. If they trade Carlson in February at the trade deadline, they get a lot more. They for sure get a lot more. If they're willing to trade him to an Eastern Conference team, they get a lot more. And... I, I want to revisit that actually again because Ottawa is going to be terrible next year. Why do they care if Carlson is on an Eastern Conference team? Well, yeah. How does it how does it matter to them? You're going to suck regardless. In You're all not honesty, competing. You don't have to go through them in the playoffs. It, if it gets you a better return, it gets you close it gets you closer to being good faster. Why would you not choose that? Carlson the- can sign anywhere he wants after this season anyways. Yeah, including in the Eastern Conference should he so choose, right? So what are you doing? <laughs> you know, but this is the thing. A lot of their activity seems premised on kind of a stupid PR campaign. Uh, and I think Eugene Melnick is image conscious in a weird way. And like, I think it borders on narcissism, frankly, where he really just seems to believe that he has to kind of manage and package this team. And he's doing a ghastly job of it. Like he had this surreal interview where he and Mark Borowicki, who's like a third pair defenseman. Yeah, we should discuss this as well. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. So, <laughs> changing lanes on the Ottawa Senators a little bit. Last week, uh, a few days prior to the Carlson trade. I think everyone's seen the video at this point, right? I, I don't think we need to explain the video. The video. <laughs> okay. Just... If you haven't seen it very quickly, it's like a between two ferns kind of interview. <laughs> Between Eugene Melnick, owner of the Senators, and Mark Borowicki, third pair of Senators defensemen, uh, of all the people you could have picked, but then it's like... Who else would it be? Who else is that? Yeah, like all the good players are leaving and Peugeot is injured. So, 
Yeah, and they had this weird... Uh, first of all, he says, I don't want to misquote it, but he says, like, we're kind of in the dumpster right now. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah. He does say that. Um, which is just a terrific thing to hear. But he seems to have thought, like, after everything that has gone wrong in the, the last year, the trades that have gone wrong, the sense that he's not willing to spend to extend players like Kyle Turris, the sense that he's not investing in the team, that he's going to threaten relocation, that his management doesn't know what's had from its ass, all of that stuff. He was like, you know what this situation needs is more Eugene Melnick front and center. And he's like, put me in front of the cameras with Mark Borwick again. It's, it was just so toned. I, the Steve Dangle podcast basically did a reaction to it on, on one of their more recent shows. And it, it's worth a watch. Just go to YouTube and like type in Steve Dangle uh, Melnick. It'll be one of the most recent videos. And, and they talk at length kind of about the thought process behind it and they also kind of shed some light more on the production side of things where it's just so shoddily done and it's kind <laughs> of indicative of I guess the, the lack of attention to detail that's, and the lack of competence that seems to just permeate from that organization at this point it's truly it's truly spectacular it, it, I really don't have words for it it's something that is just so unbelievably bizarre yeah. And it's just, you do have to feel for Sens fans to an extent. I mean, I'm a Leafs fan. We're both Leafs fans. Yeah. People made fun of the Leafs incessantly in their horrifically managed days. Oh, and God, for good yeah. reason. You know, that's, that's kind of what happens with sports fans. But with the Sens, it's, it really can't be overstated how bad an owner Melnick is. He, there doesn't seem to be any way out. That's the thing. Like, he, he's threatened relocation. He. He's unwilling to spend money. He's clearly not surrounding the organization or tr- hiring the best people to the organization and allowing them to be competent and mm-hmm. hand- being hands-off with how he's managing them. It- it's clear that his fingerprints are all over the organization and not in a good way. Um, an underrated thing to look at is if you go to the Sens organizational uh, chart on their website, it is tiny. If you compare that to the Leafs, if you compare that to the Rangers, where mm-hmm. they have so many people doing uh, various tasks. And like, that's kind of what you need to do. Hockey teams are big businesses. These are billion-dollar businesses. You can't manage that with four people. No. Right? Like, you Not need to... Yeah. It, it's just... From top to bottom, it, it seems that things are just not going well there. And it, really, I think it starts at the top. And I think this is something that the NBA has made very clear, where... The, the strong organizations are the organizations with good owners. And mm-hmm. being a good owner can be as simple as, I'm going to hire someone who's competent and I'm going to stay out of their way. My job is to sign the checks and that's it, right? Some yeah. owners are more hands-on, but you ha- if you're a hands-on owner, you have to be competent at it, the way, say, Mark Cuban is. Mm-hmm. You can't be a Eugene Melnick. You can't be hands-on and incompetent and broke. It's just not really a good combination. No, it's existential. Like, there's nothing... Like, like, there's a fruit of a poison tree situation there where it's like every decision is tainted by the weird desire to kind of package cheaping out as a positive. I'm actually surprised that Melnick didn't try for a rebuild sooner because he might have gotten away with it a little bit more. But they were coming off, uh, you know, a, a run to the Eastern Conference Final. And I think certainly... They believe they were closer than they were. Well, they believe um, they were good when in reality they were not, right? No. And I, I mean, this is this was a huge point of contention 
last off season and into the early parts of last season where basically every analytics model is like, hey, the Sens are actually not good. And Sens fans are like, no, we we do X, Y, and Z. The same thing every oh, fan yeah. base does. We when... keep shots to the outside. Yeah, exa- exactly. You and, know what? There's and, one to, team to... that actually does that, and it's Minnesota. So. You know what? Ottawa actually does <laughs> do that, except they also shoot from the outside themselves. They also don't get to the slot. So yeah. it, it, it's just like, anyways, that aside... It, but like they fell in love with that idea of the team, and it's understandable. Yeah. They're far from the first team oh, yeah. to be, they won't be dazzled by a playoff run. But uh, then they invested in it, and all of this would probably not feel nearly so bad if it weren't for that first round pick that yeah. they had thrown into the Duchesne trade, and maybe that's what they needed mm-hmm. uh, to get it done. They didn't need to make that trade, though. Mm-hmm. Uh, that. The fact that they gave up Kyle Turris in the course of getting Matt Duchesne is almost like, where's your net progress? Yeah, like, I mean, Duchesne's a better player than Turris, but it's like... Not by enough. <laughs> yeah, yeah, not by enough to justify that first-round pick. Especially, mm-hmm. well, the thing is they valued that first-round pick much lower because they thought they'd be a good team. Yeah. Right? It, it's That's kind of how it always is. Unprotected first-rounders are the most valuable... Unprotected first-rounders from teams that are bad but think they are good. It's like yeah. the most valuable trade asset to acquire in hockey. It's a very, very narrow definition as well, which is why we don't see him move that often. But yeah, it's it was just absolutely. Uh, it was it was a trade that looked kind of questionable at the time, given mm-hmm. how weak their team was in reality, yeah. and it it looks worse now. And I think also the decision to stay at number four this season, uh, and it's past draft and take Brady Kachuk oh, yeah. as that opposed could look to very, very bad. Yeah, as opposed to. Um, basically giving up the pick, giving up the number four pick to, uh, to Colorado and then keeping their pick next year. I think that's a bad decision. Mm-hmm. Um, and primarily because in this upcoming draft, uh, it, there's a good chance, you know, they, they might pick lower than four, mm-hmm. right? Even if they're the second worst team in the league, there is a pretty comfortable chance that they'll pick fifth, right? Mm-hmm. And, if they, and weird things happen in hockey. We expect the Sens to be the worst team in the league, but that may not be true, right? They may get some good goaltending, they may get some hot shooting, whatever. Yeah. But... The number four pick in uh, this most recent draft was the choice between, say, Philip Zadina and Brady Kachuk, and, and mm-hmm. a few other players, but maybe those are the two guys you're looking at most thoroughly. Uh, and those are two excellent players, and they ultimately chose Kachuk, probably lower upside than Zadina, but whatever. The potential benefit of, the, of next year's first-round pick is that you could get Jack Hughes. Yeah. And Jack Hughes is so much more valuable the value, uh, the difference between Jack Hughes and Brady Kachuk is so much bigger than the difference between Brady Kachuk and the fifth-ranked guy in 2019. Because Jack Hughes mm-hmm. is a future superstar center who has put up numbers that rival literally anyone who's gone to the gone through the U.S. national program. He looks like Austin Matthews on yes. paper. They're, yeah. they're different in person, but like they've put up similar numbers. Yeah, exactly. He, he's, he's an Austin Matthews caliber prospect. Mm-hmm. And the chance of getting him is so much more valuable than anything else as, as soon as that pick was locked in at four the upside of getting jack hughes dwarfed everything else yeah and i think you have to take that risk and i guess this is kind of a theme we see with them is right they, they do the safe thing yeah and or what also, they perceive to be the safe thing but then yeah. it's like it's always short-term gain uh that'll bite me in the long term but at least you know in the short term it'll look sort of defensible yeah, uh, the Dion Phaneuf trade didn't save them real money. That's it the just thing that gets short term money. 
exactly. It saved them for a couple years, and like, this is the kind of decision making that you make when you're broke. And it's like, I don't want to quite go all the way to saying that the Ottawa Senators use the Toronto Maple Leafs as a payday loan service, but it was a comparable level of short-term thinking. Yeah, and then um, now, and then they had to trade for enough and return retain salary on him i i doubt overall that they've actually realized any sort of cash savings on that at all no i did the math on it once in terms of like real money yeah um and it was they saved like two million dollars in the first year and Mm -hmm. then within two years the financial savings would be washed out yeah so the other thing thing that's weird to me about not weird but probably misguided about them doing the safe thing is that you know there's one of one trendy buzzword in sports, which is, you know, I'm not a fan of these buzzwords in general, but I think this makes sense, is, is David's strategies and arrives from David versus Goliath. If, if you're David and you're facing Goliath and you charge at Goliath head on, you are going to get your ass whooped because Goliath is bigger and stronger and will beat you up. You have to be clever, right? I mean, logically, if you're an NHL team, there are two ways to uh, be better than everyone else. You can either spend more money than them or you can spend more efficiently than them, mm-hmm. right? Now, the cap limits the power of the first, right? So you can only spend a certain amount on, on your team. You can spend other amounts elsewhere. But the Senators clearly aren't doing that. So they have to be smarter with their money, which means, by definition, you can't do the conventional thing because the conventional thing is average. That's what everyone's doing. You have to find kind of what people are not valuing properly. You have to find inefficiencies if you're a poor, slow, uh, low-market team, the way the Oakland days did in the early 2000s, the way... Uh, Tampa Bay has seemed to do recently. You know, I think it would be an ideal model for Ottawa, if they had the patience to follow it, is the Winnipeg Jets. Yeah. The Winnipeg Jets are not uh, a major free agent destination. They're not really ever in the running on free agents. And for a long time, it was sort of like, it appeared that Kevin Cheveldayoff was not really doing anything. But he was maybe semi on purpose, doing almost the cleverest thing he could have done, which is gradually building a good team that was undermined by goaltending and rode that to high picks, like Patrick Laine. And then suddenly when they got good goaltending, they jumped up to being a top five team uh, very, very quickly. And so I don't know that Ottawa's in a position to mimic every detail of that. And this took years to come to fruition. But right now, uh, Winnipeg has a core that I think is extremely enviable and mostly pretty young, excepting Wheeler and Bufflin, which will be a bit of a thing. But they've done a really, really good job building when they weren't a major free agent destination, when they didn't spend to the cap especially well. It's just patience and then good drafting. And by all accounts, Pierre Dorian hasn't done that bad a job building up prospects. You know, they have some interesting pieces like uh, Logan Brown and Alex Formanton and Tom Chabot is now on the roster. But you have to do something to get that core talent. It didn't come from the Carlson trade. I don't think it's going to come from the Stoner Duchesne trades. It's not going to come from their first pick this year, or at least it's not going to come to them because it's going to go to Colorado. And if you take a kind of eyes on the prize, uh, not our rival site, but just like uh, keeping your eye on the main goal here, which is get core elite talent. The Sens are farther away from doing that than they have any business being when they're as bad as they are. Like, it's not even just that they're entering a rebuild now. 
they're entering a rebuild where they don't have a prospect of getting like that crown jewel piece for at least two years. That's about as bad a situation as I can imagine. Yeah, it's really, really unfortunate for Sens fans. It's not really good for the NHL as a whole to have a fan base and a franchise in such a dire state. I'm going to say this only once, and then I'm going to go back to mocking them, but Mm -hmm. as much as I kind of enjoy it, because, you know, let's be honest, it's not like they were any nicer to us when when our management sucked. Um, Having long-term complete despair about the state of your franchise is generally a bad thing. Like, you have to have some kind of hope to sell people, or there's no point in watching sports. And the Sens fan base is going to be really damaged by the next couple of years, I think. It's... It's weakened now, and, like, I don't see that there's going to be anything to show up and watch in the next couple of seasons. Yep. Okay, so that was about 40 minutes of, of Sense Talk. <laughs> we are still a least podcast. We are. <laughs> Hard to believe. Yeah. So, I guess, it, it, what's happening in Leafsland? There honestly isn't a ton. Training camp has just started. Um People are asking a lot about the captaincy, which I don't think either of us can really be mustered up the energy, can really muster up the energy to be worked up about that. Uh, no. The most pressing issue, I suppose, with the Leafs is William Nenander's contract. Mm-hmm. He is still unsigned, he and his agent, rather, and Kyle Dubas are still negotiating. Should we be worried? No, I don't think so. First of all, this team without William Nylander is not nearly as good, but... It's good enough that, like, if there's a holdout that goes a couple of games into October, which, again, we're still not close to that point yet, uh, it's not going to devastate our prospects or anything. Mm-hmm. And secondly, I hate to say it, but Nylander doesn't have a lot of leverage here, except holding out for a bit. But, yeah. like, sooner or later, he has to recognize no one is going to offer sheet him. The Leafs are not going to trade him. They have to come around to a deal. And there might be some hurt feelings or whatever, and, you know, he might eventually shove them kind of in the direction of a bridge deal, but I really don't think that Cal Dubas is going to get pushed around like that. Uh, and so I think that this will resolve itself uh, yeah. beneficially. Yeah, and I think I think uh, one thing that's been interesting about Dubas's most recent comments on the situation is that, you know, we're, we're trying to... He said essentially that we're trying to get a contract resolved where we're not breaking records or how much we're paying him but we're also you know managing that relationship and we want to make sure that he is satisfied with his deal right and that's that's really the argument the Leafs really if they want to if they were completely motivated to they could put the screws to Nylander and really hardball him and get him to sign a really really below market deal but you have to manage the relationship yeah right so that that's a big part of this especially when it's a guy who you want on your team for the next 10-12 years Mm -hmm. so yeah I mean if you look at what his agent has done with other players like Johnny Gaudreau, extended uh, negotiations that go into training camp are not really anything new. As as Fulman says, you said like there's, he just has he has very few options, and I think Dubis, given his comments, is going to be mindful of not crushing the Nander spirit or ruining the relationship in that way, but making sure that the Leafs get a good deal. And yeah, I mean there there was some talk in the media that uh, Nylander's ask was like dry cycle level 8.5 million or so and I found this funny for for two reasons um number one so this was I saw this first put out by Elliot Friedman and he prefaced this with the agent isn't talking and the team isn't talking 
but rumor is he's asking for 8.5 mil. And it's like, well, who did you hear it from then? Right? Like, yeah, if, friend if, of a friend of a friend through yeah, a Yeah, like if, if the agent isn't talking to anyone and if the team isn't talking to anyone, well, what's happening? Is this like some intern in Louis Gross's office who went rogue or something? Like, <laughs> I, it seems like it's... Because you can see how easily that conversation uh, happens where, you know, Friedman talks to, I don't know, some Western Conference GM about uh, the negotiation. The GM goes, oh, yeah, I think he might ask for 8.5 8. mil. And then, like, suddenly, like, that's a throwaway yeah. comment can very easily become a big talking point, which I guess we're furthering by talking about it. Yeah, well, um, it makes... I don't think that... Uh we should be too free with the term clickbait because people yeah. use that for anything I don't like on the internet. But uh, more people are interested in something ridiculous than something kind of normal. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it's sort of the, you know, dog bites man isn't a story, man bites dog is a story. Yeah. So William Nylander purportedly saying, oh, I'm worth 8.5 gets a lot of people being like, he's not worth 8.5. I don't even think he's worth, you know, and you'll get a lot of people who are be like, trade him for picks. Yeah. And um, the other thing is, that's not a ridiculous ask. Like, he's not worth 8.5, but you don't ask for what you're worth. You ask for no, more than what you're worth. A negotiation. And, like, every time people, this is in a, sort of an unrelated aside, but anytime you hear about a lawsuit, you'll hear things that are sort of like, you know, John Smith is suing Amazon for $100 million. Dude, I can file a statement of claim tomorrow saying I'm suing whoever for whatever I want. It doesn't mean that I have a hope in hell of getting it. Um, but big numbers are kind of interesting. In Nylander's case, obviously, open high and then work your way down. I do think uh, just a general understanding of... Um, the bargaining process and how this sort of works, I think everyone can kind of intuit it when they think about it. You know, you'll come together to the bargaining table, they'll start low, you'll start high, you'll work together, you'll make arguments, you'll say, okay, that's what you want for six years, can we do five, can we do seven? It's a process. I did see we had one uh, commenter who was very aggressive, actually, on this point about uh, the Nikolai Ehlers contract which Winnipeg signed in October of last year, um, before Ehlers went into the last year of his ELC. And Ehlers got uh, seven years at six million AAV. And this guy said basically, like, Ehlers is maybe a little better than William Nylander. Why they're, would about ever... a, they're about as equivalent as two players on different teams can possibly be. They're extraordinarily close. So, but the, the guy was saying, like, look, Ehlers got this. Uh, the deal start in the same year. Uh, why would we ever give William Nylander more than $6 million? Um, and that's not really how things work in terms of a bargaining. Like you Can, can you, you know, elaborate kind of, on that? Because I think that's kind of a common thought where people talk about comparables, and Ehlers is probably the closest comparable to Nylander. So mm -hmm. why, is it, why can we not just anchor Nylander's contract to Ehlers? Okay, so I'm going to elaborate on this a little bit from an example from my legal career back when I had one. Uh, before I sold that and moved into insurance. But like I used to do sentencing in criminal court and it wasn't that different, except you know we were going before a judge, so it was more like going before an arbitrator, but it was the same thing. And so we would say, okay, our guy, let's say, got caught with some cocaine in the trunk of his car. As and one does. As what you know, nobody's perfect. So uh, he got a book for that. And so We'll go in and we'll and the crown will say, okay, I have this case here. 
that says he ought to get, you know, X number of years, uh, you know, three or four. And we'll say, well, we have this other case here that gets two or three. And then we'll say, okay, but we have another case. We have a court of appeal case saying in these circumstances, this is what applies. And the Crown will say, that doesn't apply here. There are differences. And I feel like I have to emphasize this. If I had showed up to my boss and said, I have one case, let's go and argue it, I would get fired. Because that's not how you do a negotiation. Even you if that case is very close Even if to... it's perfect. And again, Ehlers is a great comparable, but you can't point at him and say, ta-da, I've solved the negotiation. Because that's not how negotiations work. If you let's say, are Kyle Dubas, and you come in to meet with Lewis Gross, and you say, hey, look what uh, Ehlers signed for. Why would I give you anything different from that? Lewis Gross is going to say, okay. That deal was signed in October 2017 before we had a cap increase baked in. Now we have one. Circumstances have changed. It's different. Uh, William Nylander has had uh, an unusually high percentage of his shots missing and being blocked. That's probably not going to sustain him itself. He'll probably get 70 points next year. Uh, and you can go on and on down the list and immediately find five things that you can argue make that situation different. And it doesn't mean that you're wrong to bring up Ehlers. It doesn't mean that they're... I mean, we've said they're similar players and it's a relevant comparable. But no one thing, whether it be Ehlers or David Pasternak or whoever else you want to talk about, is going to decide this. It's going to be decided by bargaining power, a certain amount of patience... Who wants to blink first? Who gets worried about the relationship and their future earnings first? Um, and so, as much as I appreciate the process of comparables, and Ian Tullock, uh, frenemy of this podcast, uh, had a good uh, piece of The Athletic looking at some of this stuff, it's going to be hard to peg. But I, I, you know, if you want my prediction, I'll say I think he comes in for six years at, I'm going to say, 6.6 .6 million in that range. But it could go up or down. The years could go up or down. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Um, one thing that you mentioned there, a difference with Eater's contract and, and Nylander's was, as you said, the fact that Eater's was signed when people expected a cap increase but didn't have certainty of what it was. Which means it was negotiated under kind of the cap hit percentage when it was signed for the year it would take effect was unknown. Right? Um, now it's known. It, and it, the cap increase was big, which means uh, someone negotiating their contract now can... Negotiate with knowledge of what the cap is and anchor their salary figure to a percentage of the known cap as opposed to an expected cap with, you know, some variance bands around it, essentially. Yeah, uh, exactly. The other thing is, uh, Ehlers signed his contract before his current one expired. He was, mm -hmm. in doing so, he has hedged against injury risk, essentially, because he's guaranteed himself money. And a, a team will say okay, we're, we're happy to ha sign this deal now, um, but you need to give us a bit of a discount to do it because we're foregoing the opportunity to get more information about you to make sure you're still healthy eight months from now and make a better informed decision. Right? And, exactly. And we saw it just now with, with Tyler Sagan, uh, his contract extension with Dallas. He signed for $9.85 per year, something like that. He would get the same contract John Tavares got on the free agent market. Yeah. There, there's no It's because he, he signed a year early. He said, I want to stay here. I want the security. Sign me now. And Dallas said, okay, yeah. But as a result, we have to keep the AAV a little bit lower. Like, that's just kind of how it works. You, you gave Sagan something he wants. You gave Ehler something he wants, long-term security. 
And as a result, this kind of alludes to what you said earlier, every clause in a contract has a cost. Signing mm -hmm. a contract earlier has a cost as well. Exactly. And, you know, the fact is for an RFA, the only real leverage you have at this point is threatening to hold out. Uh, offer sheets are mostly imaginary. No one signed one since 2013. So really, uh, holding out is really pushing your only button of leverage. Ehlers didn't push that button at all. He said he signed way before there was any prospect of a holdout, like a year in advance. Nylander has been willing to go closer to the line on that. And as a consequence, he's in a position to push for more money. Again, that's how bargaining power works. None of this is about how, you know, what I wish he would do, what I want him to sign for or whatever. I want the NHL to abolish the salary cap, if you ask me, because I'm a Leafs fan. I'm just saying, I think that in these discussions, maybe, there's often a neglect of how bargaining works that is maybe a little bit deliberate even in some of the reporting. Or I won't say it's deliberate, but it's like when you get he's opening at 8.5 without context or explanation, just saying like that's where he's opening at, that really has to be in a context of, okay, sure, that's where he's opening at, but that's not where it's going to end, and no one, including Lewis Gross and William Nylander, thinks that it will. So bottom line is RFAs pretty much always sign. I don't think Kyle Dubas feels anywhere close to trading William Nylander, which is the only other way this would likely end. So maybe he misses a couple games in the worst case scenario, but like William Nylander will be a, a Toronto Maple Leaf this season and for many seasons to come. And this is just the sausages being made. Yep, pretty much. Um, okay, so that what else has happened in, in Leafs training camp? Um, We've had some uh, thoughts from Kyle Dubas. Um, oh, yeah, some thoughts from Mike Babcock as well. Yeah. Um, it's always interesting hearing, uh, you know, the GM or the coach offer their quotes on, uh, on these things because most of the time they're kind of saying the thing that they have to say. And yet you, every now and then you'll get a bit of a feeling uh, for what they really think. Like if you ever heard... Uh, I've talked about this before, but the way that Mike Babcock talked about Zach Hyman, yeah, it, it was immediately like, that's a coach's favorite. Uh, same with Connor Brown, same with Roman Polak. Uh, there's been an impression that we've gotten in a, a couple places that he's not. Let me put it this way. If I were Josh Levo, I would not be buying, buying Toronto real estate right now. <laughs> he probably has it by this point, but like, I, I just, I don't know that I see him being on the roster this year and... Yeah, so actually, yeah. this is a good segue to talk about the roster composition in general because mm -hmm. um, the Leafs are pretty... There, there aren't too many questions about where exactly... who exactly fits in on their roster. There aren't too many spots up for grabs, really. Mm -hmm. But the ones that are up for grabs are very much toss-ups with potentially very many people involved and there's also some lineup battles as well. So, um, the most obvious forward spot competition, I would say, is kind of, I would say nominally the fourth line left wing, even though they may play on the third line. But basically, mm -hmm. uh, who is the fourth left wing on the team and who is the fifth left wing on the team? And that is pretty much between Tyler Ennis and Josh Levo. Now, either of these two might actually play ahead of Andreas Janssen, mm -hmm. but Janssen seems to have a relatively secure spot on the team, in part because of his special teams ability and... Uh, 
yeah, his, his youth, the fact that he's waiver, uh, he, he is not waiver exempt, so sending him down would require waivers at this point, I believe. Um, um, wait, is that the case? Sorry. <laughs> I should just look that up real quick. Um, but yeah. essentially, that's the main uh, kind of roster spot that is up for grabs right now. Mm-hmm. Right now, with William Neander not being there, uh, Tyler Ennis is getting, is really taking his spot on Austin Matthews' line with Patrick Marlowe. And Josh Levo is playing with Nazem Kadri and Connor Brown. Now, interestingly, uh, the way Mike Babcock likes to do things when players are missing is that he doesn't kind of shift everyone up a spot. He will plug his replacement guy into the missing player spot and keep everyone else the same. Which, in this case, would indicate that Josh Levo is actually perhaps intended to start the season with Connor Brown and Nazem Kadri on the Leafs' nominal third line. Now, with Ennis, that's kind of a different... It's kind of a different situation to normal because Ennis is also new, right? Yeah. So how do you see that shaking out? I just, I mean, this may be simplistic, but if you were betting on Josh Levo being a regular roster player for the Toronto Maple Leafs in any of the past several seasons, you would have lost your money. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that I see a big change there. Josh Levo uh, has some offensive gifts. If you're going to use him, you ought to use him on the power play. And, you know, maybe you can find a home for him there. But I don't think that Mike Babcock is that impressed with him. I don't... I, I think that if he were going to crack the lineup, he, were probably, he probably would have done it earlier. Mm-hmm. And I think that Tyler Ennis is very interesting. I'm not sure how much Mike Babcock likes him, but I know that he doesn't seem to like Josh Levo. Yeah. Uh, so I, I would bet on Tyler Ennis almost by default. I it, think Ennis has a lot like, to offer, but <laughs> we're not we're not going to believe that Levo makes the roster until or, or plays until he does, right? Yeah. Um, I just looked it up. Janssen is in fact no longer waiver exempt, so yeah. he would have to pass the waivers if he was sent down. So as a result, his spot on the team is pretty much locked in. Yeah, and um, Janssen was too good in what yeah. we saw of him last year to be and in, in the AHL playoffs, he was monstrous. Yes, uh, he was undeniable. So yeah, so I, I guess. There's, there's been some talk this year. Um, I don't know how substantiated it is. I don't know if Dubas has commented publicly on this. But there's been some talk that um, kind of the, the Corrado Island type experience that Josh Levo had to go through last year will, no long, will not be the case this year. Where essentially, if he is not in Mike Babcock's roster's plan, roster plans, the Leafs will either trade him or waive him and give him an opportunity somewhere else to stick on a roster. Yeah. Um, which... Again, I don't know if that's true. If, if it's true, I think that's I think it's good. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, from on a personal note, you don't like to see someone's career stall the way it has for Lebo. Um, mm-hmm. I think certain segments of the fan base definitely overrate him at times, but it must be hugely frustrating on his end, and I can definitely empathize with with that situation. Uh, I think he's handled it pretty admirably, by and large. Mm-hmm. I think you know he, there was that thing where he apparently requested a trade last year. Again, can't really blame him. No. I, at the end of the day, you know, if he goes somewhere else and lights it up, I, more power to him. But, yeah, I, I kind of agree with you. I'm not 100% sure that I, – I just don't think Babcock will really – I think Babcock – I don't think Babcock hates him or anything. I just think Babcock thinks, yep, this is a marginal NHL player, and mm-hmm. he's on a team with a lot of forward talent. It, that's kind of his spot. He's also been kind of unlucky in that when the Leafs have had injuries last year – they were pretty much, it was to centers mostly, right? Matthews got injured for a little bit. Um, there, was, there was no one who kind of 
Josh Lieber would naturally supplant in the lineup. Now, the fact that he couldn't get in over, say, Matt Martin is also damning in, in the sense that it doesn't seem that Babcock really finds his play to be adding that much value. But, yeah, I think, like Fulman said, uh, until he lands on the roster, until he plays some games, I'm not really going to believe that Babcock is going to trust him to do that. No. I, I, we just, you know, there's been some... Some suggestive arguments that, given how Lebo was produced in a pretty limited opportunity, that he might have more to give. And people look at the Vegas Golden Knights and they see some guys who were blocked mm-hmm. uh, on their previous teams. And they think, well, you know, maybe there's some room there. I think if you traded Josh Lebo to the Edmonton Oilers, he would be probably their third best left wing because the Oilers are quite thin at left wing. Uh Actually, I don't know how good Milan Lucic is at this point, but that's an aside. Um, but he would probably get time there. Their power play isn't good enough to keep him out. He could go there, and, you know, I wouldn't be astonished if he scored 35, 40 points. But on this Leafs team, where there's already a lot of offensive talent, where there's a lot of speed, and Levo's speed isn't that great, um, I don't know that Mike Babcock thinks that he needs more of what Josh Levo provides, and I think he probably feels that he needs more of what other players provide. So if you have a guy like Zach Hyman, who's very gritty and determined and willing to go into the corners and all that sort of stuff, that probably appeals to Mike Babcock as a complimentary piece more than Josh Levo does, where you set up with a good shot and he can take it. I still, you know, I recognize that he could have more to give. I'm more skeptical of it than maybe some people are, but, you know, I just, I don't see it happening here. I don't think it's going to happen here. Yeah, I mean... His production in the minutes that he's had, it's undeniably good. It's an open question, I think, whether that production is sustainable, right? He, he's definitely had very high shooting percentages at times, unsustainably yeah. high for sure at times. So how much of that is real, how much of it is not, um, we, we don't know. Mm-hmm. I do think that there's something to be said for having a consistent run of games that allows you to kind of work through your mistakes. And I think if you are if you feel empowered and you feel confident that, okay, I'm not going to be sent to the press box if I don't have an obviously excellent game, yeah, you could, prob- you could potentially unlock more. At the end of the day, it, it's also hard to get too worked up about it from a Leafs perspective because I don't think Josh Levo is going to provide that much value above Tyler Ennis, if at all, right? So yeah, I, I understand the arguments of people who want Levo to play. Um, and want to play on the Leafs and feel he can actually add a lot. But I don't think, at the end of the day, it's going to make a huge difference whether he plays or Ennis plays. And as of right now, I would probably put money on Ennis play. Yeah. I do want to have one sort of parting point. The big thing about Josh Levo, especially in previous years, was his points per 60 were spectacular because he was getting a few points and he was getting almost no minutes. So it looked like he was, you know... Shooting the lights out, basically. Last year, Matt Martin had a better points per 60 at even strength than Josh Lefo did. <laughs> yeah. So I feel like that's all of the... Martin's points came in, like, four games. And there were, it was, like, two games when Marner was with him and two games when Nylander was with him. Yeah. He had, like, one three-point game. Yeah, and that, like, <laughs> was... inflates his points per 60 yeah. by a massive degree. And that's not, like, I'm... Pretty sure Josh Lefo has more to offer offensively than Matt Martin. But it's just to say, like... Don't get too carried away with rate stats and small samples, maybe. Yeah. And for the record, in terms of small samples, Matt Martin played more than three times as many games. 
So it's like, I, I just think that uh, when people talk about Josh Levo, there's a lot to like there. There's a lot to believe in. Again, you could believe he could do more. It's just, there's this mythologizing of him because, you know, he's there, but we never actually see him play for an extended run. I don't know. Anyway, yeah, Talarenis is going to win that job. There's my my <laughs> firm prediction. Yeah, and I guess the the next question is, is Tyler Ennis going to win the third line left wing job, right? And I guess we can mm. kind of dovetail this with discussion of the third and fourth line right wing jobs, which seem to be a battle between Connor Brown and Kasperi Kapitan. Yeah, it's, it's, so we were it, talking about clear. this on Ian's podcast, actually. Yeah, it's not clear which direction the Leafs are going. It seems they're starting with Janssen and Kapanen being fourth liners, and Bob McKenzie in his Leafs preview podcast said as much, and you know, McKenzie's as plugged in as they are, so I will take his word as gospel, essentially. And it's, it's borne out by the Leafs' line rushes and whatnot early on in training camp. Um, what do you think of that decision, both of them? So Janssen below Ennis, slash Lebo, but let's just say Ennis for now, yeah. uh, and Kapanen below Brown. I think there's going to be a certain amount of, like, working their way up. So... Uh, Kat just said this, but like the lineup on in game one may not be the lineup in game 40, may not be the lineup in game one of the playoffs. Mm-hmm. And I think the long-term trend is probably going to favor Kapanen and Janssen. I would rather uh, play certainly Kapanen over Brown right now, but I get it. Brown is the good soldier. He has more experience. He's done the job for a while. I, I think we can afford to be a little bit patient on that. And, you know, Mike Babcock takes the attitude of like make the new guy win the job forthrightly. Ennis, it's hard to know, because Ennis has been, at times, quite a good player. I love Andreas Janssen. I think he has a lot to offer. I think he's a really exciting player. I don't know what to expect out of Tyler Ennis this season. Yeah. And I can envision a best-case scenario where he's a real, like, maybe better than people are discussing. I don't want to get carried away because I don't want to bet on this, but, like, there's a scenario where Tyler Ennis... Uh, Nazem Kadri and either Brown or Kapanen form the best third line in hockey by far. Andreas Janssen, I like a lot. I think, like, maybe the median case is probably I prefer Andreas Janssen. I just think that there's some interesting possibilities around Tyler Ennis given his recovery from injury and, like, what he's been able to do at his best. So, I, I'm, let's say I'm a little more willing to wait and see on this one. I'm kind of resigned to Brown over Kapanen, even though I don't agree with it. Yeah, yeah. I, I think, I mean, it, I guess it's not really surprising if you have, if you take into account the way Babcock tends to work. As you said, he likes to make the young younger ones steal a job from a veteran, mm-hmm. right? And I think that's that's fair. That's, that's the type of thing a good team does, right? A good team doesn't promote a young guy because they are there. They promote them because they're better than the alternative. Yeah. And it's, you know, Babcock had a saying last year where he said, you know, we don't always get it right immediately, but we get it right eventually, right, in terms of yeah. the roster. And that was in reference to Kapanen being sent down when he was quite obviously one of the Leafs' 12 best forwards. Mm-hmm. And I think the same is true here, where it, he's going to line up behind Brown to start. Depending on how he plays, he will move up. And Kaplan will certainly have the opportunity to do so, given that he uh, he's going to be on a fourth line. That if it, if it's Janssen, Lindholm, Kaplan to start the year, that is a very atypical fourth line. Even if yeah. it's, even if it's Ennis, Lindholm, Kaplan, that's a very very atypical fourth line. That is a much faster fourth line than I would say most. 
mm-hmm. and it's one that in theory has a lot more offensive firepower i mean people have kind of discussed perlintom like he's this defensive checking center in the swedish league and that from what i know isn't that accurate he played on an offensive line he didn't really play that much, that much on the penalty kill he, he is not going to come here and light up the lamp offensively but he's not a prototypical shutdown defensive center either so that's kind of interesting in the sense that it, it makes me wonder how the Leafs plan on using their fourth line are, are they planning on just kind of using them to win those fourth line versus fourth line minutes are they planning on maybe even using them in higher in minutes higher up to shelter players like Matthews and Tavares a little bit, right? Because if you can shelter those players even a little bit, they will absolutely explode on depth, guys. Oh, yeah. Right? And that's... I mean, the dream is the lineup with no safe spots. Yes. Where every single line is a threat to torch you with goals. And it's so hard to produce that. But if you have an overqualified fourth line, that's going to scare other fourth lines. Um, and then the coach thinks, okay, I have to shield these guys. I have to... Um, you know, if you have such an abundance of offensive talent that you're terrifying everybody, that has the potential to be really fun. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So uh, it, it's going to be it's going to be interesting to see. One thing I'm curious about with the Janssen Ennis battle is that Ennis isn't really what you would describe as a shutdown winger, the way Babcock likes to use Kadri's line. Janssen actually mm-hmm. kind of fits that role a little more, given the fact that uh, Babcock apparently trusted him to do some penalty killing, and he's he's known as a pretty decent defensive player. Yeah, uh, you know, by reputation, he's he's good. I, I think Janssen is a really interesting all-around player because I think he can kind of do anything pretty well. I, I'll, I'll be full disclosure here. Sometimes, you know, you kind of fall in love with a player. And if you're me, you almost have to, like, overcompensate to try and hold yourself back from overrating it. That's how I feel about Andreas Janssen. Mm-hmm. Um, he's so impressive to me in so many respects where, like, the only knock on him appears to be size. And he's, like, I don't think he knows how small he is. Mm-hmm. Like, he doesn't care. He doesn't uh, shy away from contact or anything like that. So I would be really happy to use him in almost any left-wing job. But certainly, I, I think he has a lot to offer. You know, I'm not saying he's going to be a star or anything like that. But he, you could use him on a defensive line or an offensive line or any kind of line. And I think that he would do a competent job. Yeah, very versatile positionally, mm-hmm. uh, or sorry, in terms of how he's used. Yeah. Uh, I gotta say, it's a lot more fun talking about this forward lineup than when we had, like, one good line three or four years ago. Like, yeah, there's no wrong answer. Yeah, so. yeah, you can line the Leafs up almost in any way, and it, there'd be a valid argument for it. The defense is probably... A little less so. Uh. <laughs> As of right now, what we've seen is that the top two pairs are pretty much the same. Uh, Morgan yeah. Riley, Ron Hainsey, Jake Gardner, Nikita Zaitsev. And, I mean, the Leafs' options are limited. Uh, Kyle Dubas has said that, you know, he's more bullish on the Leafs' defense than other people are, which is encouraging, but at the same time, what's he going to say? He's not going to be like, hey, our defense actually sucks. <laughs> what the hell, Lou? What were you doing? Right? Like he, he's, yeah. not, he's not going to do that. He's going to project confidence. In his, yeah. in his roster. Uh, not doing so would be moronic. Yeah. I, I mean, and this is the thing, is even if you are trying to work the uh, the phones to try and acquire another defenseman, the last thing you want to do is look desperate. Yes. So yeah. the, and, the correct assertion is always, our team is great. I love our team. I'll improve if I can. But honestly, I'm so happy with our team. Yeah. And side note, this is one thing that 
the Habs have done really badly in that like their front <laughs> office talks yep. about their players too honestly to the media. So they basically like just tank the value of players because they are so openly castigating them. Um, yeah. Alex and they kind of set them up to team. fail, and then when they fail, they acknowledge. Like they did this with Duran. They're like, he's going to be a center. And then at the end of the year, when that didn't go so well, they were like, okay, so maybe he probably shouldn't be a center. He's not actually that good at it. It's like, oh, okay. Yeah, it just like, <laughs> doesn't seem useful. Um, yeah. As it relates to as it relates to the Leafs, and this is again something that Bob McKenzie said in his preview podcast. I think what's going to happen is what you see is what you get. You know, the, mm-hmm. the third pair guy might change. Right now, it looks like Igor Ozhiganov has the pole position, but, you know, we won't know until maybe the fifth, sixth game of preseason, really, who is really in the lead for that spot. As of right now, it's just we have the same kind of pretty mediocre defense core. Hopefully, there's some tactical shifts that Mike Babcock can implement to make them perform better. Um, much like Kapanen and Janssen, I expect Dermot to play himself into a larger role as the season progresses. Mm-hmm. He's currently starting on the third pair, left side, assuming he continues to destroy the sheltered competition that Babcock normally provides that pair. I imagine he will eventually move up in some capacity, or Babcock is going to start finding him some more shifts to to play. That already happened last year, where pretty early on, uh, Babcock started using him after icings with Morgan Riley to... Yeah essentially produce a really, really high-octane defensive pair uh, for offensive zone starts. I can see more of that happening this year. Nikita Zaitsev is just going to have to be better. A lot of it comes down to that. Yeah. Uh, he didn't have the best year last season. Mike Babcock actually had a really interesting uh, comment in one of his press conferences where he essentially said that um, the Leafs internally are just much, much higher on Zaitsev than people outside the organization are. And that's because they see kind of the stuff he does. And... The specific thing he mentioned was being able to stop cycles, right? Being able to Mm -hmm. stop the opposing team from cycling the puck. And that certainly has value. And to be honest, I think think that's actually something Zaitsev is pretty decent at. I think my, my, my read on Zaitsev is that he's really good if he has the puck in the offensive zone. He's really good if he doesn't have the puck in the defensive zone. But every other situation, he's like pretty mediocre. Yeah. Or, or actively he, bad. Like, he, he's not great at moving the puck, which is which is odd given that He seems like he should be much better. Like, this is the thing about Zaitsev is he seems like he should be better than he is. He's less than some of his skills. Yeah. It's weird. Um, he's very bad at defending the neutral zone as well. That's what I've had. Yeah. Right? Um, and it's just, you wonder if, if he can get better at that. Like, he, he's not, I don't want to say finished product, but like, he's not young anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, he's in his late 20s. Um, the thing about that quote about stopping the cycle is it made me think a little bit like producing a reference letter almost for someone who you know is not always the greatest employee. Mm-hmm. Like you just, you find the thing that they're good at and you spend a paragraph on that. <laughs> um, it, it's nice, you know, it's sort of like, okay, this guy showed up late every day and you know, his deportment was bad, but he's really good at being patient on the phones or something like that, you know? Nikita Zaitsev is really good at stopping the cycle. Yeah. Um, Although, it it is mean, legitimate, but it, in context, you can still be like, okay, but we're getting blasted when he's on the ice, and we would like that to improve. Yes, yeah, and like it, it, that's the thing. You can be particularly good at an individual skill, but one of the nice things about on-ice metrics is that 
it's kind of, it's a measure of the totality of what you're doing. If you are getting caved in in on-ice measures, if your team is getting drastically outshot and outscored when you're on the ice, um, which is the case for Zaitsev. At least they, relative to the team, he, Zaitsev gets outshot. Last year, he mm-hmm. actually didn't get outscored, but that was kind of a bit of a PDO mirage, in my opinion. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's a problem. So Zaitsev can absolutely be very good at that one particular skill, but if that one particular skill is not the most relevant skill for a defenseman, and there's a good argument that it's not, that the most relevant skill for a defenseman is, is kind of preventing transitions with the puck and transitioning with the puck yourself, Yeah. then it doesn't necessarily mean he's an amazing player. I tend to believe Mike Babcock when he says that he's really high on him because his, usu- his usage of Zaitsev supports that. This isn't like Roman Polak where he talks up Polak to no end and then uses him like a sheltered third-pairing defenseman. Yeah. Right, and that it clearly demonstrates that Babcock knows Polak's limitations. Um, Babcock uses Zaitsev like he is a strong, defensive, second-pairing guy, right? And that may be because the Leafs, frankly, don't have many better options, especially on the right side. But yeah. I, th- I think Babcock is being honest when he says he's on he's 100% uh, a supporter of Zaitsev. I also think it makes sense that given Zaitsev has had reported confidence issues, you want your coach to be talking him up. You want your coach to oh, be yeah. reassuring him, right? And it's kind of the opposite of what Babcock does with guys like William Nylander, where, mm-hmm. you know, um, William Nylander, if he, like, scores a hat-trick, Babcock will be like, yeah, he, he had a decent game, right? Actually, I think, <laughs> I think that happened where um, the first, in, in Nylander's rookie year, when he had that hat-trick in Boston, Babcock was asked about it. He said, yeah, he always plays well when David Pasternak's on the other team. We just got to get him playing that way all the time. And it's like, it was a very backhanded compliment, even after oh, the yeah. best game of his career. Like, Babcock is, like, the stern but loving parent, where he's, like, if you're getting carried away for yourself, he wants to deflate you, and then if you're down, he kind of wants to lift you up. Yeah, so like, I think it's, like, different kind of stra- motivational strategies work for different players. Um, there's actually a, a good soccer example. Uh, Steven Gerrard, who's a legendary player for, for Liverpool, uh, one of the bigger clubs in England. Uh, during his prime, he was managed by this... Uh, coach named Rafa Benitez and Benitez was notably like kind of a sourpuss kind of and Gerard <laughs> has mentioned in his autobiographies is that like man the one thing I really wanted to get out of, get out of him was a well done and mm. he never gave it to me right and this is one of the best players in the world one of the best midfielders in Premier League history right so it, it goes to show that different managers have different styles and motivation and that worked for Gerard it might not have worked for many other players and that's part of being a coach. It's not just the tactic side. It's managing people, right? Yeah. So it, it's interesting to see. It's, when, when you start thinking about that and thinking about how that may be affecting the way a coach talks about certain players, I think you can get some insight into how much of it is real and how much of it is uh, performance to some extent. Yeah. I, do, I can't help but note that, like, so much of this sounds like, I just want you to tell me you're proud of me, Dad. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, that's human psychology, right? It's like you want to be yeah, you want validation. rewarded and encouraged, and that's natural. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, cool. Um, the last thing we wanted to discuss, this actually just became news maybe five, ten minutes before we started recording. Uh, Chris mm. Johnston tweeted that uh, Mike Babcock has said uh, in some press conference or some interview or whatever that... He is going to play Jonathan, Jonathan Tavares, John Tavares. <laughs> yeah, John Tavares and Mitch Marner on the penalty kill. Uh, I mean, what are your thoughts on that from jump? Because everyone on my yeah. Twitter feed in, in the 
you know, in, uh, immediately after that tweet landed from, from Johnson, I literally just had a wall of Leaf fans who were basically just squealing. Yeah. <laughs> so are you, like, similar, similarly effusive? No. <laughs> um, oh, wow. I don't hate it. What a downer. Like, what a downer. Uh, honestly, um, one of the biases, I think, of nerd Twitter is, like, resentment of the specialist especially the pk specialist mm-hmm. and like you'll see it in extreme examples of guys like leo Komarov, where they view the pk specialist as like the pk is what's holding him in the lineup and then we have to watch him you know suck in the 80 percent of his minutes that are even strength and people are like it's not that important stop playing and then you know the solution is why don't you just play your stars on the pk and you know uh good players have hockey skills news at 11 and they're probably going to be a lot of them good at the penalty kill like they can learn it john Tavares has killed penalties before um he did it for a pretty ghastly new york islanders team last season i can believe he's good at it i like the idea of having uh, a natural center on the pk because last year we didn't play any of our top three centers on the pk extensively which was a bit of a thing because you'd like to win a few more face-offs than we did. And we were playing converted wingers like, uh, you know, Zach Hyman on the penalty kill a lot. So I like that. And I like shorthanded goals. At the same time, is it going to be kind of the miracle situation that some people seem to think? I don't know. Also, when he says, I'm going to use them on the penalty kill, there's using on the penalty kill and there's using on the penalty kill. Like, Connor McDavid was used on Edmonton's, side note, awful penalty kill last season. And he was used as a kind of lesser second unit forward, where you have the, the main guys who kill the first, uh, the first power play unit, hopefully. And then in the last 30 seconds or so, you put on the Connor McDavid unit against the second power play unit, and then maybe he can kind of turn the tide with a shorthanded opportunity. It would not at all surprise me to see Mitch Marner use that way, and it wouldn't surprise me if he were good at it. But that's different than having him be on the first unit that's killing 90 seconds of the penalty. So I'm curious to see where it goes as much as I'll say. I don't know that it's going to make as much of a difference as people think. I'm more positive on it than you are, I think. Um, Oh, yeah? Yeah, I mean... Okay, so for what it's worth, Tavares, in the last couple seasons, he, he's played a, a decent amount on the Islanders' penalty kill. Um, it's hard to suss out penalty kill talent, but he does seem to have a positive impact on the Islanders' penalty kill relative to the rest of his teammates. Now, that does not mean that the Islanders' penalty kill was good when he was on the ice. I, I haven't done the research into that. But I think, as you said, hockey is hockey if someone is very good at 5-on-5. Five if they're very good at 5-on-4, I think they'll probably be decent at 4-on-5 as well, right? Um, yeah. And power play minutes are kind of are, are high leverage in the sense that per minute, obviously, a lot more scoring gets done than at 5-on-5. If you can cut that down, you have cut down potentially um, a pretty severe amount of scoring. It, it can be something that's really useful, and it can also be, you know, as much as I like to, I'm a stats guy and I like to decry momentum, it can be a momentum shift. Right? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. It, it can be completely backbreaking to take care of a shorthanded goal. So, I, I like it from that perspective. Um, I do think, as you said, I don't think uh, these are going to be the primary penalty killers for the Leafs. I think most likely it's going to be uh, the other guys in the mix are kind of Hyman, Brown, Kapanen, whoever the Leafs' fourth line center is. I'm guessing Lindholm or Goat. So, I don't expect Tavares and Marner to suddenly become 
Patrice Bergeron and Brad Marchand were their Boston's top penalty kill unit. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's a neat idea. I think you can do a lot. I think a lot of times uh, teams are almost not expecting penalty killers to take chances offensively. Right? I've seen so many times where uh, Brad Marchand will just will pick up the puck inside his own blue line, and everyone just thinks he's going to dump it out. He just decides to go for a skate. He's like, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm faster than you. There's one less player on the ice. There's more space. And yeah. teams often are like, oh, crap, he's going to try? <laughs> we, didn't, we didn't agree to this. No, um, no and, stop and, that. And you get like often a forward having to play defense when 10 seconds ago they were just thinking about scoring. You know, I don't think they're the most motivated defenders in that context. Yeah, it, uh, it, I mean, it can it, work well, especially, yeah, especially if, as you said, as you alluded to, if you put Tavares and Marner on towards the back end of the power play, uh, and then, you know, maybe even as the penalty expires, you could also let your first post penalty kill shift, then become Matthews, Nylander, Marlow or something, and then it's just like, oh wow, we completely turned the tide in the back half of that power play and, in the, first or second shift, that, followed it, right? So. I think it's a neat idea. I think getting elite players on the power play, playing elite players more is a good idea. The Leafs didn't really ride their elite players that much last season, um, in part because they didn't really need to. They, they played mm-hmm. them a good amount at even strength, but because the Leafs' top power play unit was so incredibly strong and none of their stars played on the penalty kill, overall minutes for the big three and Kadri were, were low. This year, yeah. they have so many strong forwards that you want to get minutes that I think playing one or two of them on the penalty kill to get them some additional time makes a lot of sense. So I'm actually, I have high praise for this move. I think it, this is a good move. What, how much it moves the needle? Probably not a whole lot. I mean, Tavares will play probably, what, 120 penalty kill minutes, like probably at the most this season, mm-hmm. right? It, it's not going to be a huge amount, but I like the idea about it a lot. And I think it also signifies that the Leafs are going to try some stuff. And that was one of my big issues with them last year last year in february they had a locked in playoff spot and they spent the rest of the season pretty much doing the exact same thing yeah right it's like guys why not try something you have like you do not get a better chance to experiment than now right yeah um and it's more complicated than than that right as i've alluded to babcock has to manage the personalities and the hockey players are creatures of habit there's a lot more complexity than i'm giving it there but that's something I would like to see more, and I want to see the Leafs experiment more this season, especially since it seems like they will be relatively secure in a playoff spot, knock on wood. Yeah, hopefully. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, part of this is almost like, as you say, it's a knock-on effect of, like, we've added a superstar center. Like, we have so much elite talent that it almost naturally overflows into putting elite talent onto the penalty kill. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like just going from Bozak to Tavares does that. And you know, like I love JVR, but no coach in 1 million years was going to use him on the penalty kill. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, I think it is, it's exciting. And uh, the willingness to, uh, to try more, uh, more things is encouraging and really, and this is sort of like a, maybe not that optimistic point to finish on for a good team, but it's like, um, this team is going to be defined by what happens in April. Like they should be making the playoffs as a default. I'm not Mm -hmm. saying it's a given. It never is, but like, they should be very likely to do that. And then that's what matters. So 
really Mike Babcock should be getting, you know, his lab coat on and his test tubes out and like trying a lot of things and putting together something that he hopes can beat the Boston Bruins or the Tampa Bay Lightning or wildcard team X from uh, the Metro uh, in the playoffs, because that's really what matters. So maybe, you know, we'll see some more freedom to experiment on his point, his part. I'd also like some more freedom uh, for the good players to try things maybe a little bit more. Like I think that, you know, Matthews, Nylander and Marner are coming into their own. Now they're going into the third season. I hope they're feeling a little bit more free to experiment themselves too. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I guess we're going to see. It's encouraging. I just, I don't think that it's going to, like, really warp our power play numbers to the degree that some people seem to be expecting, but yeah. Yeah, I think it's a good sign, if nothing else. Yeah. So, let's go with faint positive. Yeah. <laughs> Always the optimist. <laughs> um, okay, cool. I think that pretty much covers what we wanted to uh, for this for this episode. A lot of sense talk, but hopefully we got, we got enough Leafs talk in there for you. Uh, Fullman, are you going to plug anything uh, before we head out? Uh, the only thing I did was, topically enough, an article making fun of the Sens yep. uh, recently. So if you want to read that, uh, it made some people mad, but that was kind of predictable. And then hopefully I'll try and do something relevant to my actual team that I try and write about in the near future. Yeah, and uh, one thing I'll note is that you know, as we're heading into the start of the regular season at Pension Fan Puppets, we are ramping up our coverage. We're going to have previews, recaps, uh, discussions of every single game. You know, I think we're one of the best spots in the blogosphere for Leafs content. So for sure, uh, check out all of mine and Fuleman's stuff there, as well as our other very talented writers. Uh, you can also follow myself and Fuleman on Twitter at RV and at AT Fuleman. That's all from us. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in a couple weeks.